So we're holding in Derech Hashem, and uh, we're, we're, we're battling our way through the first parak, and we're on to the, what looks like possibly the fourth, the fourth paragraph on the very first page of the first parak, and the Ramchal begins and he says, after discussing the idea of the knowledge of Hashem, which comes by through some type of tradition, through the revelation that happened on Sinai, and he says, Omnam, gamitzad the knowledge of God's existence can also be very interesting, can be proven through investigation. We can really prove it from biology, handasa, from geometry, from mathematics and other wisdoms. That we can derive principles which will establish the fact of the existence of God. Now, of course, in the modern context, these words are very difficult to hear. Because we've been so brainwashed by Dawkins and his evil crew that you have to be you have to be really stupid to believe in God and really there's no logical proof whatsoever. So when even the notion of logical proof as a suggestion for the existence of God comes about, so we kind of we have we have an, we have a, we have a, almost a, a patronizing relationship to oh, don't be silly to be caught in the in the in the in the backwards thinking of the prim- which is really unfair. Because there are a lot of highly gifted intellectuals that argue with Dawkins and those of his ilk, and a lot of what is said on both sides is 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 open for for discussion and investigation for sure. I'm presently reading a book which challenges these avowed atheists because, unfortunately, being human, we all have our own fallibilities, and when you see um, a person and I'm not saying Dawkins in particular even though I believe he does who has a very strong agenda so you always have to be suspicious of his logical integrity and there could be no stronger agenda in the world than to rid ourselves and create the God delusion because if we can free our consciences consciences from the notion that we have a responsibility so then we have the right to explore every desire to the nth degree and feel no remorse. Now, that seems to me a great incentive, incentive to disprove God. In fact, at this point that, that um, the way of Elchanan Wasserman, one of the people who is... <laughs> Would you like to eat it now? We'll wait for you. We have time, but now we'll get to his Benish Chai. <laughs> <laughs> you'll say a bracha, he'll argue. He'll say, ah, the Benish Chai doesn't say that there are bracha in the food. We, we, I mean, why waste your time in the share and not accomplish something at the same time, like nourishing yourself? Um, go on then. It's a delicate moment when you try to figure out is he sarcastic or is he sincere? Is he sarcastic or is he sincere? <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Khanan says the following thing. He asks a question. He says, Philosophers for eons have debated the existence of God. And the expectation of, of, a, of, a, of a person, 13 year old Jewish man, 12 year old Jewish lady, Jewish girl, is that she should have a muna. But what about this, this incredibly complex need to discover the existence of a God and, and all the 
corresponding philosophical proofs or just proofs, how can they possibly fathom it? He, it, he, he puts it across very plainly. He says it's quite simple. He says it's overwhelmingly obvious that God created and runs the world. Certainly the notion of a created world is, is, is the default approach we should have to the existence around us. Why should we think otherwise? It's only after a person becomes seduced, intoxicated by his desires, does he seek to disprove which, something which is seemingly the most realistic and obvious way of explaining the world around us. And all you have to do is remove that desire, and then a person can have a touch of objectivity. And that's really the way the Chazanesh, whose Yorta was but yesterday, introduces his Sefer Emunah Bitochen. He explains Emunah as a delicate movement of the soul when freed from the pursuit of desire. And if we can share with you a story, which I recently heard from the person that it happened to, his name is now Rabbi Yitzhak Fanger. It never used to be Rabbi. It always was Yitzhak and Pashtus Fanger as well. And he was an Israeli brought up in Cholon, completely secular. The only... I love that. The only... Thank you, Joel. The only... And how was that? Like, you couldn't go on the streets at night because you'd probably get shot. Not positive. Not positive. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So he grew up in Cholan where, where he was deeply secular. He, the only religious experience he ever recalls having was his Bar Mitzvah where he learned to, he went to Shul, I don't know if he went to Shul, but he learned the parasha he read from the Torah. And he was so secular that the notion of exploring Judaism as an option for religion completely didn't even come into his mind. But he did study other religions and he became in, particularly involved in a kind of healing process known as Reiki. I think it's Japanese in its origin. And he was very talented. And whilst in the army, he studied further, finishing the army, he went to study underneath a <coughs> extremely skilled and successful practitioner in America. But he felt always that there was a, a deeper side to Reiki that he wasn't getting to. So he decided to go back to the roots and just kind of investigate the whole Eastern way of perceiving the body and energy and the like. And he landed up in a, a monastery in Tibet under the auspices of the Dalai Lama. And he showed extreme talent in his meditative abilities and his natural, natural um, kind of fluidity, fluidity with healing. And he was selected from amongst the people in the monastery to go to a small deserted monastery in the middle of a forest in, in India where there was no electricity in no running water, it was a small little camp by a stream and the conditions of acceptance were to do certain kinds of meditation as well as six months of silence no speaking not to anyone else and not even to yourself and not anticipating how difficult that may be he decided to do it. He's a man who was up for a challenge and off he went. Tillich, in a way, set up a small grass hut where he stayed, gigantic trees, peaceful, tranquil, meditating most of the day and not speaking. Silence. A silence which became part of his every waking moment until 
as time went on, he doesn't say how long, he started to feel something churning inside. The need to speak. He says it became so powerful, it felt more like a volcano about to erupt. And one day, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, the sun tentatively spreading between the leaves and casting its small patches of light on the forest floor next to the stream, surrounded by the monks. He felt that this urge to speak was uncontrollable. He had no idea what would come out of his mouth. And then it exploded. And he was astounded by what happened. Almost uncontrollably, the first thing that he said after those, I think it was months of silence, is he began to read with the correct cantillation notes the parasha that he had said in his parametra. That's what he did. And it caught him completely off guard because he hadn't thought about it for over a decade. He had no idea where it came from. And it started him thinking and thinking, was it homesickness? Did he just want the connection to some type of familiarity in terms of heritage? Open to thought, continued on. And a few nights later, alone in his small little hut, he felt the presence of someone in the hut with him. Didn't hear anyone come inside. Lifted up his candle held it out to the different corners of the hut, there's no one there. But the presence, he still felt it so, so tangibly. He felt deeply uncomfortable. He didn't know what to do. But lying to sleep with that feeling hanging over his head was an impossibility. So he picked up his sleeping bag to take it outside, to have a bit of space. And as he picked it up, he felt something caught in the hood of his sleeping bag, and he shook it. And in the hood of his sleeping bag, fell out a yellow scorpion. Had he put his head on the hood, the chances are would have stung him. Had it have stung him, by the time we'd have got to a hospital, which is at least three hours journey away, we'd have been dead. And he felt he knew something, someone, something bigger, something more powerful was protecting him. He didn't know what didn't think about God, Judaism, Torah, nothing. But he knew there was something. And this was causing an internal conflict, a struggle. He didn't know where to take it. And only a few nights later, his candle went out. He looked for a new one, scrounging around in his duffel bag, opened up one of the zips to a pocket, and he pulled out something which was there. Couldn't find the candle. And it was a small, a small card which he'd got when he left Ben Gurion Airport. One side had the Wayfarer's Prayer, and the other side the Shema. Oh, he'd been meditating for a long time. He thought, out of curiosity, I wonder what would happen if I experimented with meditating with these words which he'd never really read in his life before, the Shema. So he tried it. And when he said those words, he said he couldn't, he couldn't have ever fathomed the reaction 
entire body started to gyrate. He couldn't believe it. It's almost as if his entire internal being had been shaken up. And he was so shocked and so bewildered that he realized that there was something here that needed to be pursued. And the next morning, packed up his bags. Doesn't say if he said, bye guys, because I don't know how the silence stuff was still going. And <laughs> off he went through so he, could, he couldn't get a plane back to Israel. He landed up going through Uzbekistan or somewhere. It wasn't, and he landed up back in Cholon, outside his house. And there was a sign just next to where he lived, which said, "Jewish mysticism: a sheer on life after death, the soul." He thought, "Hmm, gosh, this seems particularly relevant." And the story goes on now. He went to the Shir and went to another Shir and eventually rediscovered his roots. And uh, he tells it beautifully. But what's fascinating is in many parts, I suppose, that we all appreciate differently from the story. But what I think is something which I've heard from many people, and that is it's amazing what happens when you shut off all the noise inside of yourself. What comes out? It's really done. Try not speaking for a few weeks. Calm. No clutter. Tzvas Emes says in last week's parasha that the expression of Ayarashim Kitoiv, that Hashem saw the creation, it was good. He says that statement is a description of everything in contemporary creation as well. There's a kernel of goodness. There's a, there's, a, there's a spark of holiness in absolutely everything. You just have to, like Avram Avinu did, remove what's called the orla, the covering. When you take off the covering, the goodness is there. You don't have to create it. You have to uncover it. And therefore, when the Ramchal speaks about proving the existence of God. So I would suggest that we are so intoxicated by so many desires pulling us to and fro and so many seemingly educated, intelligent individuals who become their proponents so we have an automatic resistance to accept this. And that's fine, but bide your time and see what happens as you progress in your spiritual journey. The Ramchal doesn't even spend time on this. He says, we're not going to go into this in length. He says, I'm not going to try to prove to the existence of God. I'm not going to go that way. You want to go that way? Go ahead. If you want scientific proof, go look for it. I'm going to discuss what I know from the tradition I've received. And essentially what the Ramchal does over here is he bases himself on the hidden works of the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria. There were a few people that took the, the Kabbalah of the Arizal and translated it into layman's terminology. Ramchal was one of them. They burned it all as well, right? Not this, but there was... He, yeah, the, he, he came at a, t- a very sensitive time. He came after Shabbat Atzui and there was a lot of fear about the study of Kabbalah. So... And he was very much a very strong proponent of it. But essentially, all the words that we learned 
that we are learning in the Ramchal can be understood on infinite levels of depth. Yes, Joshua. Um, like bearing in mind the Kabbalistic names for God, some of them like Hamakom and then Sof, and um, surely like the minute that we try, I think we've even discussed this, the minute we even try to prove God, it's like almost a form of idolatry because we're limiting something that's infinite into something that we can think of or grasp. So that's not God. The minute we try and prove that thing, whatever that thing is, then it's like essentially doing something different. You, there's no way to prove God. Sure. There, there's something, that, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that when you're living in a place where you have a relationship with Hashem, it's really offensive to stop proving Him. It's like almost I'm in the room with you and I say, one second, one second, Gary J, just knock him on the head, see if he reacts. Ah, ah, he does exist. It's very offensive when people try to prove your existence when you're in the same room with them. I find that offensive. So it's probably the same for God. Um, but but what, what, what is interesting is that the Ramchal um, strongly takes one position and he, he goes with the Messiah. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to tell you stuff that I've figured out for myself. I'm trying I'm telling you stuff that I received as a tradition from those that came before me. So I think when we learn the, the Sefer, we have to be a little bit aware of that. And he's 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 linking us to to the hidden wisdom of, of those greats that came before him and we have to we have to have a certain measure of respect when approaching his words. Noah. I just wanted to mention that I remember in regards to reading that he also stayed in a hut on the Nile and didn't speak during the whole week except on Shabbat. He spoke in Hebrew. Just a nice... Quote. Say again, what happened? That he would, uh, Who's he? Dari. would be on a hut on, on uh, the Nile the whole week and he wouldn't speak at all. And right. on Shabbat he would speak in Hebrew to his wife. So there's this correlation between his Great. Great. to know your wife in the week. <laughs> <laughs> How do you find a good one? So, but, but the point that Noam's making is that something that we've forgotten, we've forgotten the gift of silence. And we don't appreciate how healthy it is to learn how not to speak. Even when you're having a conversation. We have a compulsion to fill up any empty gap with words. And sometimes if you actually leave space for silence, the conversation is much more powerful. Jacob? Um, apart from that comment, which I agree, um, maybe, no joke. Uh, you're saying we shouldn't come from a bias, the problem with most atheists is they come from a bias, but we're coming exactly from the same bias. True. But there is another point with atheists. Uh, someone gave a share, he's a very talented guy, I was meant to be critiquing him, but I was just so overly impressed by his presentation. He started off the share, I don't know if I told you this, he started the share and he kind of giving a share on, on, on the existence of God. So he said, okay, he says, who in the room is a believer? No. People lift up their hands. Who in the room is agnostic? 
the best. Agnostic means you can like, have a spiritual life and you don't have to do anything. That's Gavaldic. Superman God. Comes and helps you and then goes away. Um, so agnostic <laughs> is extremely popular because you don't have to be as, like, you know, as open as an atheist and you don't have to be as committed as a religious person. That's the best. So you're being agnostic, which means if things go well, Gavaldic. And if not, yeah, there's always a escape hatch. So lots of people are agnostic. Who's atheists? You, know, you get people that, you know, they're affirmed atheists and they pick them. So the person, the rabbi giving the drasha, he said, atheists, you the guys I relate to the most. Because the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Isn't that a great thought? And Rav Cook, he quoted Rav Cook, and Rav Cook says it. He says that in, in, in preparation for the Mashiach to come, there needs to be a breaking down of the mistaken notion of what God is. And atheism, atheism paves the way for a deeper realization of God. Because people are open. They don't, they're not, they're not, they don't have the baggage of the connotations of what God is. So they can, ex- they can expose themselves to the depth. Of, and Joel Ben-Gaira, just actually, before we end this year, get one question from you, Joel Ben-Gaira. So what would you say to the people who go, well, agnostic, but like, better to believe because what's, what do I lose? If, I, if he doesn't exist, then I've lived my life according to a set way which is generally considered good. And if he does exist, I'll... So, I mean, that's called from, Jody. That's called from. That's not agnostic. (laughs) (laughs) That's like you've just described a lot of people. Um, Right. For me, that that kind of lifestyle is is extremely, extremely tragic. A person that believes God as an insurance policy. Uh, How can you develop a relation that way? Relationship. The whole of life is is seen through the eyes of Jewish self-advancement is how to create a deep and deeper intimacy, intimacy with the Creator. Now, if you look at, if you look at the, the whole of life as like doing the right thing so you don't fall off the deep end, so you're missing the whole point. So I hope you don't think that way. If you do, you're missing the whole point. I want you to say that in the nicest possible fashion. The end.